Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, our pastor, David Lunsford, is continuing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Open your Bibles if you have them, please. About 20 years ago, God made it possible for me to go to Israel for a very brief uh, visit. So I went with a whole group of pastors, about half a dozen of them were friends of mine from our fellowship in the Northwest, and we had a great time, a lot of fun. One of the places that we went to was Jacob's Well, the very well that is being spoken of here in, in John chapter 4. What's, what's kind of funny and kind of disconcerting that, is that as you go throughout Israel, every place you go to, the guide... Uh, well, not the guide, but there will be little markers and churches, and they'll say, this is the exact spot that Jesus was standing on when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, or when he did this, or he did that, all these, and of course, nobody knows where those spots were. But one of the spots that is exactly known is Jacob's well. It is the same well today as it was in the time of Christ, going all the way back to when Jacob dug it. Now, it looks different today than it looked back then. That is, today it's covered with a church, and, and you can walk down, sort of like walking into the basement of the church, if you will, and there's a small opening. You can see that that's down into the well, but you can't actually sit by the well like Jesus did. And there's a man sitting next to the well at a little table, and he has little ceramic bottles that say Jacob's Well Water on them. And Well, different sizes of them, of course. <laughs> and when I was there, they said, uh, it's $3 for a little bottle of water. Now, we'd been on this trip long enough that I'd begun to learn about all of this bartering, or not bartering, but haggling over the price. And, you know, what we learned in Africa last year when we were there, there is the first price, and then there is the, I think they call it the final price or the best price, and you know, all of this, uh, the missionaries would use that language. Well, is that your best prize? You know, whatever. So here I am at Jacob's Well, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting the hang of this. I'm going to bargain for this thing. He says, three bucks for one, I'm going to say two for five. So I said, two for five, you know, and I'm kind of pressing it. And he says, it is for the church. <laughs> and of course, my pastor friends are right there going, yeah, Lunsford, hey, it's for the church, you know, and <laughs> shaming me, so I paid three bucks for the darn bottle of water. How different the activity today at Jacob's well from when Jesus was there. When Jesus was there, it was just a well, and uh, he just sat down to get a drink because he was thirsty, and he was, he was traveling along, didn't have things with him to draw the water out of the well and he asked this woman this woman who's unnamed just called the woman of Sychar that would be the town she lived in we call her the woman at the well 
And she's there, and he says, would you give me a drink? And they have an interchange. We looked at that last week. And, 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 and she's amazed that he'll even talk to her because he's Jewish and she's uh, Samaritan, which means she was part Jew and part other things. And, and in that day, the Jews and the Samaritans just did not get along. They really hated each other for a variety of reasons. And she's just amazed that he'll talk. And, and he goes on to say, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, you would say, please give me the water of life and, and I will give you this water and it will bubble up in you and, and your life will never be the same. He was basically saying, you could have salvation. Your whole life could be changed if you would ask me for that. And we pick up the story in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus had been using sort of some picturesque language to try to draw her interest into spiritual things. And he talked about the water that he was going to offer her being water that would spring up within her in verse 14. And it'll, it'll be everlasting life. And she said, give me this water. What's the very next thing Jesus says in verse 16? Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, or, or the Christ, is coming, who is, who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We're only going to look at the first part of this today in order to really do it justice. But what is kind of amazing, especially to our modern sensibilities, is this. Jesus had talked to this woman. He'd gotten her interested in salvation or in spiritual things, gotten her interested in himself as a prophet. And, she, and clearly he knew what was in her life and in her heart. And so when he said to her, go get your husband and come here, Jesus wasn't just thinking he was going to talk to the whole family. Jesus was purposefully pointing out something in her life. And what he was pointing out was this. The road to salvation requires the confession of sin. 
Jesus had told her the wonderful things that he had planned for her, if you will. He had said, look, you can have a a new life. Instead of having a life that's like a drought on the inside, you can have a life that's like a well on the inside. It's springing up. It's new life. He knew that she'd had a hard life. He knew she'd been married five times and was living with the man to whom she wasn't married. And as we pointed out last week, it was not just that Jesus saw the, the wrong of that, as in she broke God's law. He saw the hurt and the, and the hardship and the difficulty of that and the disappointment of that. And he, said, he said, lady, your life could, could be totally made new. And right away he goes then, to say, we need to talk about the sin in your life. And so I just want to stop today and and talk about the the doctrine of sin. The the, the fancy word for it in theology is is hamartiology. And that's from the Greek word hamartios, which means sin. And it's it's like in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I just want to look at what the scripture says first of all about the origin of sin. Where did sin come from? And it starts with God's commands back in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. He's talking amongst the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I hope you understand this is what God intended for creation. God did not intend man to fall into sin. God said, let us make man and let's let him rule the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was God's intent for mankind. He created a perfect world and put Adam and Eve there and say, Have children and fill this earth and rule the earth. And and in other words, humankind is the ruler of the earth, not the environment ruling humankind. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. God said, "I, I want you to be here. I want you to rule the earth. And then God gave them one instruction and the lord god commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die god created adam and eve in a morally pure condition and when i use the word moral i'm not thinking about sexuality i'm thinking about the whole realm of morality all of right and wrong of truth and error adam and eve were morally pure and he put them in a perfect world you think mount baker is beautiful on a on a glorious sunny blue sky day like today the world was more perfect then and we'll see why in just a minute but it was an absolutely perfect world. The two of them were completely morally pure. They had a perfect 
relationship. Very similar to what Chris and Bonnie have right now, as a matter of fact. No, they, even better than Chris and Bonnie, even better than whoever is the most loving husband and wife here, they had a perfect relationship. And he gave them one rule. One rule. He said, don't eat from that tree right there. Now you can look at it as one rule. You can look at it as just the idea that they had to obey God. Whatever it is, it's a very singular thing in which God asked their obedience. So sin did not come from God. It came from man's rebellion. Here's what mankind did with God's rule. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, and he said to the woman, from other scripture later on in the Bible, we understand that Satan possessed a animal and through that animal talked to Eve. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows, here's what's really going to happen. In the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Now we don't have time to delve into this in depth to understand all of the nuances, but one, there is a part of truth in what Satan said. And you know what the part of the truth is? Oh, where did I go? Back there. One more. The truth is this. Did Adam and Eve learn evil? Yes, they did. Did they know evil before they ate from the tree? No, they did not. Now the foolishness was thinking they'd be better off if they knew what evil was. God knew what was best for them. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will, your eyes will be open. You will know good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree that it was good for food, it looked delicious. It looked like the plates that came out to our table last night. We looked at that and said, man, that looks good. And then we tasted it and said, man, that tastes good. She looked at that food. Somehow God has created within us the ability to look at food and say, wow, that looks tasty. She looked at it and it looked good to her. It was pleasant to the eyes. And it was a tree desirable to make one wise. She said, I'm going to be smarter than God or as smart as God. So she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And that is the first sin in the human race. One of the youngest uh, members of our church family is Nathan Smith. Nathan is about that tall. We like to call him Baby Bob because he kind of resembles Bob on the Quiznos commercials. And his mom and dad said they're 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 training him already, and and uh, 
they're training him, you know, yes and no and to obey and so on. And, and uh, he's, he's old enough to, to be aware, but he's not verbalizing yet. And, and they were having dinner together uh, in the, uh, out in the living room on the big uh, coffee table. And, and Bob had already had, or, or Nathan had already had his dinner. <laughs> and uh, they said, no, they're training him by saying, don't touch this, because he wants to get a hold of things and pull it off like every little baby does. So they're training him that way, and they said, don't touch this. They said, if you touch this, you're going to have a timeout. So he walks around the other side of the table to where they're on that side looking at him, and he's looking at them, and he goes, <laughs> and Chet says, but I caught him. What is that? Where does that come from? Things haven't changed much, have they? Rebellion is the heart of sin. It's us saying, God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Our parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's simple command. Now remember, perfect world, perfect environment, Perfect husband and wife, not satisfied. And so they said, essentially, God, you've left something out. We're going to go get it. And that's where sin came from. Now, what were the results of sin? The first result is this, spiritual death. When God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. That's the way it's often translated in our scriptures, it literally reads this way in the Hebrew, dying, you shall die. And we understand from that and the rest of scripture that there are two aspects to death. One is spiritual, the other is physical. Spiritual death, as I have summarized it today, is this, a pure mankind became morally corrupt. Later on, the scripture says we're totally overrun with our sin. So much so, though, that baby Nathan has to defy his parents over such a simple little thing. A pure mankind became morally corrupt. One author said it this way, spiritual death is that which is the separation of the soul and spirit from God. And it fell upon Adam and Eve at the moment they sin. And in the scripture, in Genesis, we find immediately two aspects of spiritual death. Now this is not all of the aspects of spiritual death, but it's the two that we find immediately. The first is guilt. There was a dreadful awareness of wrongdoing. Adam and Eve did not sin and then learn evil and then think, yeah, we know evil, cool! First thing they did was run and hide. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. They were naked before the sin, we, we call that the fall, the fall into sin. Before the fall, they, they were naked, but somehow... God caused them not to notice that. It's possible. There's a number of possibilities. The scripture says they did not know it, and now they knew it, and in that is shame and guilt somehow. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was, didn't he? So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The very first result of sin was guilt, or a dreadful awareness of wrongdoing. Guilt is that inner working of conscience which causes some people to become depressed. They're so aware that they've done something so bad that they just cave in on themselves and become depressed. Guilt is a strong motivation that causes some people to defend their actions no matter how awful or stupid they are. And they look like this. No, I didn't do anything wrong. And they have this big explanation for what they've done. Guilt can cause such embarrassment that people will pretend to act crazy. And they will say they hear voices just so people will leave them alone. Guilt drives some people to kill in order to silence the critic. Guilt causes some people to hurt themselves and even to try to kill themselves out of a need to punish their wrongdoing. Guilt causes people like the woman at the well to change the subject when their sin is pointed out. Did you notice what she did? When Jesus says, go, go find your husband and bring him here. She says, well, you must be a prophet. Do you know, we go to church over here. And you folks say we should go to church over there. Jesus is saying, let's talk about your sin. Guilt. Sin is quite exhilarating on the front side. But afterwards, there is just the dread of guilt and the fear of punishment. Look at the second aspect of spiritual death that started immediately. Self-love. Caring for the self above all else. And God said to Adam, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman! You gave me that special woman and she got me to eat. Now I would just have you stop and, and think for a minute. Why didn't Adam stand up and say, You know God, I did wrong. You know why? Because one of the essences of sin and spiritual death is self-love. I didn't do wrong. She, she made me do wrong. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Now, God knew they were both individually culpable for this, but he's following this trail a little bit. What is this you have done? And the woman said, that serpent deceived me. I'm not guilty. It's his fault. Spiritual death, a pure mankind became morally corrupt. Guilt and self-love. Self-love is what causes a human being to take the life of another human being just to keep their own freedom. 
Self-love is what drives a husband to repeatedly cheat on his wife all the while proclaiming his love for her. Self-love is the impulse in the heart of a teenager that enables them to curse their parents while eating their food. (coughs) Adam and Eve didn't want to admit their sin, and you and I don't want to admit our sin either because we are cut out of the same prideful cloth that they are. They were. Spiritual death. A pure mankind became morally corrupt. And then physical death. God said to them, If you eat from this, dying you shall die. There will be spiritual death and physical death. And we read about that in the aftermath here. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What is he talking about with the dust there? Well, we learned earlier in the book of Genesis that God took the, the dust of the earth or the dirt of the earth and he fashioned a man and then blew the breath of life into him so that man was created in a different way than the animals were. And mankind has a unique existence before God. The punishment for sin was physical death, or the results of sin are physical death, excuse me, spiritual death and physical death. Uh, Yesterday I went to visit a lady over at the Louisa house. I was asked to go by her daughter and uh, had a wonderful visit. Turns out this lady is, is somebody who's been coming to our church services and she's a wonderful Christian lady. She has cancer of the mouth. Came on her quickly, it's growing rapidly. And... She said, I had a couple of crying jags. I said, you know what? I think it's okay to cry if you get cancer in the mouth. But it's just the normal deterioration of our physical bodies that's part of the result of death coming onto the human race. God never intended for us to die. Death is not a normal part of life. Yes, I understand that it's usual in the sense that God now says we're all going to die unless we get to the rapture first. But it was not God's original intention. God didn't intend for us to face the fear of the unknown and to go through this death, uh, death occurrence. He did not intend that. Physical death came on mankind because of sin. There's one more thing that came on mankind because of sin, and that is God's curse. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I won't pretend to know exactly what God is talking about other than somehow this was an animal that walked upright and now it crawls on its belly and that's the curse of God on this animal. Was the animal a helpless dupe? Under the power of Satan, yes, he was. God cursed him anyway. He participated in tempting God's human creation. God judged him for it. And he's talking to the serpent as an animal, but he's also talking to the serpent, the person Satan. He says, I will put put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy of the Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, someday, Satan, the the Savior is going to come along and he's going to bruise your head. That is, he's going to totally remove your power completely 
And uh, we know from the rest of Scripture that he will be judged and he will be locked away in torment at a time in the future. And then he goes on to the woman. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Again, we don't have time to go into this, but we notice very plainly from looking at this that before there was sin in the human race, childbirth would have been without pain. Can you imagine that, women? You, you would have had lots of children because there's nothing to dread, nothing to fear, no problems in childbirth. The pain and the difficulty of childbirth is a result of God's curse on Eve for her rebellion. And also the challenge between husband and wife. He says, your desire is going to be for your husband. Many interpreters put it this way. Your desire is going to be to rule your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Part of, part of the challenge between men and women is a result of the curse, which is the result of rebellion by mankind. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat it, eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Basically he says, men, work is now hard. In particular, he's obviously talking about farming, if you will, but I believe by extension he's talking about all of work. We were created to work. Adam and Eve were created to be doing God's work in subduing the, uh, the earth and, and caring for the garden. I believe uh, it would be accurate to say God intended for them to be farmers, but there were no thorns and thistles, no weeds. I'm not a gardener. I'm barely a lawn care guy. I know there's weeds, though, and I got two or three different kinds of spray. I got the kind that kills everything, you know, and I got the kind that just kills some things, you know. I hate weeds, and weeds are the curse of God on men because of Adam's sin. God cursed us. He put punishment on us because of our rebellion. What is the extent of sin? Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. The evils of our world today are due to the rebellious actions of our father and mother that started this pattern for the whole human race. We are all born in sin. And in fact, Galatians 5.19 says what the works of our flesh, the things that we naturally do being human are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Those four words cover every form of sexual sin that there is. One of the things that amazes me today, and, and I, I, I'm looking for the day when people start to deal honestly with this, is in our contemporary American society, we make a division between certain kinds of sexual sin. And here's what I mean. It's absolutely sinful and wicked in the American public's eyes for an adult 
especially a man, to have sex with a small girl or a small boy. Absolutely unacceptable. Throw him in jail. And even now they've strengthened the punishment, which I'm for. And yet, if you have adultery, well, you know, that's, that's not the best. You know, you really shouldn't do that because it hurts your husband's or wife's feelings. If you're single and you sleep around, hey, not a problem, just use condoms. And we make these divisions between different kinds of sexual sin, and there's all kinds of them. God says all of that is the result of our human flesh. We are born with sin working through us, and this is an evidence of that. Um, I, I talked with a fellow pastor who was asking some help on counseling somebody this week. And he said, I'm, I'm going to be counseling this man. He, he claims to be a Christian and he goes to church. He's had seven affairs. He's had seven affairs. Why is that? It's because sin dwells in him. Why can't we say no? Because there's sin in us goes on with a list, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of those things are natural. It doesn't take a bad environment growing up. It doesn't take poor nutrition, it doesn't take a genetic defect. They're all natural. They are all the result of sin that's in us that started with Adam and Eve rebelling against God. Sin is our problem. Would you go back with me to John chapter 4? And I would just remind you again that Jesus is talking about salvation. Let's, let's start at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this physical water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. And he knew she was living in sin. Why did Jesus go right to talking about her sin? Because the road to salvation starts at the town of confession of sin. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This week there was a story in the news, a couple of them actually. There was one, I believe, about some state employees in the state of Washington. And there was another one about the, uh, the CEO of Radio Shack. And both of these stories uh, were circling around the idea that people lie on their resume. They write on their resume, I have this degree or that education or this or that, whatever it is. And apparently they've found that some folks who work for the state of Washington have, have done this. And, and so technically they're not uh, uh, 
they're not fit for their post and they should not have their jobs. They're, they're making more money than they should or they're in jobs they shouldn't be in, that sort of thing. The CEO of Radio Shack, I mean, Radio Shack's a huge company. I think they said they had 7,000 stores. And uh, somehow, one of the newspapers down there in Dallas got to poking around, checking out his resume. And he said he had degrees in theology and psychology. Now, if you're going to lie, don't lie about theology. Seems like to me, you know. But he said he went to a certain school in California, which has since moved to a different location, and he had a degree in psychology and theology. And when they checked with the school, they said, well, he only attended the school for two semesters, and we didn't even have psychology classes at that time. It was a Christian school, so he would have taken perhaps a theology class, but no psychology classes. And when he was confronted with this, he said he had misstated his educational record. Well, I I may have misstated some things in my educational record. Hey, friends, I remember when I walked across the platform and got my degree from the president of school, and I think I'd remember it if I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, I remember because when I walked across, the president said, and here's Lumpy. thought will that never die (laughs) here's what i want you to get a hold of today folks that fellow from radio shack and and i'm sure he's a nice man I, i got nothing against him but when he tries to tell me he misstated his educational record here's what i'm telling you he lied but you know what he won't call it a lie because what he doesn't want to be wrong He doesn't want to admit that he did wrong. That is the problem in our society today, and it's also the problem in our souls. We do not want to say lying is sin. We don't want to say sex outside of marriage is sin. We want to call it making love. Hey, it's making sin. We should call it making sin. Taking things from a store isn't shoplifting. It's sin. Being unfaithful toward your spouse isn't a fling. It's sin. Meditating on morally wrong behavior isn't fantasy. It's sin. Sin is the reason for the problems we have. Sin was the reason for the problems that the woman at the well had. Now, I'm I'm sure she was sinned against by some of those five husbands. I have no doubt about that. But she chose to live with the man to whom she was not married currently, which helps me to understand maybe her sin was part of the problem with some of those five marriages. Sin is the problem. But especially for those of you that are new here today, I want you to know that that is the most loving thing I could say. Do you know why? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the good news, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Don't be afraid to admit that you're a sinner, because Christ died for your sins 
He died to take our sin away. Sin is the problem. The penalty is eternal death in hell unless we put our faith in Christ and then he comes in through his shed blood on the cross and washes us clean. The scripture talks about us being clothed in white clothing, typifying the idea that we are clean before God. Christian, in our desire, in your desire to bring people to Christ, don't be afraid to help them see that they're a sinner. Someone has said, maybe we don't get more people saved because we don't get more people lost. And they think, I don't need the Lord. They don't understand that sin is the problem. May God help us to embrace His evaluation of our souls and of our world. And may we admit our sin and receive his forgiveness. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us in our sin. You are too kind to let us just suffer and struggle along. So you provided salvation for us. Not only so that we could go to heaven when we die, but also so that we could have a new life right now. Father, help us to understand your truth. Help us to believe you. Help us not to rebel against you. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.